Hebrews chapter 12. I would like to begin reading in verse number 1. I'm going to read down through verse 16. So we have a reading of moderate length tonight. I think these verses are familiar, but let's don't take anything for granted. Let's listen in, see what God has for us tonight. Hebrews 12 and verse 1, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. Let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down on the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of vile sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they, verily for a few days, chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Follow, after, follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Looking diligently, lest any man fall, fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled." lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. O oh God in heaven, thank you so much for the wonderful joy and privilege it is to find the guidance that your word can provide for us on a daily basis. And Lord, especially when we are at sea in this world so often, struggling to find our way, tossed about with many a conflict, uh, fightings within, fears without, as the songwriter puts it. Uh, we find the stability, the strength, the anchoring points that we need in your word. And its truth reaches out to us. It's living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And Father, please use it again in our hearts and lives tonight. We know you'll always do that. You're faithful to bless your word. If only our hearts are in tune, if only we desire to receive the blessing you have. And to that end, Father, would you cleanse and fill me once again. Help me to be a useful vessel in your hands this evening. Help me to bring your word, nothing more, nothing less, what you desire for people to hear tonight. And open our hearts and speak to our hearts. And we'll thank you for what you do for us now. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen. Well, once again, something else that's fast approaching on our calendar are the revival meetings with Will Galkin. And so I have been doing some 
preaching here on these Sunday nights about revival, trying to get our hearts in tune with that subject, thinking about that subject. And tonight I would like to bring a message to you that I've entitled, Hindering Revival. Clearly there are many things. I bet you if I asked tonight, put your hand up if you know something that you think hinders revival. I bet we wouldn't have much difficulty with this. I bet we'd have a number of people put their hands up fairly quickly and we would hear a list of a number of different things that we might uh, have as excellent items to put on our list of things that can hinder revival. But the one that is on my heart tonight is the subject of bitterness. We find attention to that given in verse number 15, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. And thinking about the subject of bitterness tonight, I think we have a prime hindrance to revival. But I would like to ask you, since I've introduced the subject and I've mentioned the word bitterness, I wonder if I could just maybe put this into a very practical question tonight so that you might see the burden that's on my heart and kind of what I'm thinking about in, in this message. Question is this, how can we have revival if Christians don't talk to each other? Now, what I mean by that is not, of course, that you come into church tonight and extend your hand to say hello to someone or shake hands with someone and they don't speak to you. Well, of course they speak to you. What I'm really talking about is how can we have revival if when Christians have problems or differences, if when things go wrong, if when somehow uh, someone has been offended or speaks a word that is just hurtful to someone else, we don't talk to one another about it. And I think we have in this a very honest rendition of what can happen when bitterness enters in our, into our hearts and it's a great hindrance to our spiritual lives, and it's a great hindrance to revival. I have simple, three simple questions or thoughts that I would like to bring you tonight from Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 15, thinking about the subject of bitterness. The first of these observations is a root. I want you to think with me about a root, because that's the image that the writer uses. That's the figure of speech he's using to convey this truth. And the first thought tonight is a root is something left over. Now before I develop that just a little bit, and I think you'll see that point readily, I'd like to say just a word or two about the context because I really don't care to preach on verse 15 without us seeing a little something of the greater context from which this verse comes to see how this fits in. And so we have here a warning, and we have a warning against spiritual dropouts. That's what's going on in chapter 12 as we begin our reading and as the verses continue. Think about this for a moment. It starts off by talking about the figure of a race for the Christian life. Have you ever dropped out of a race? Have you ever wanted to drop out of a race? Land sakes, I can remember when they decided they'd put that, how long was the run? How many minutes? 12-minute run. Well, I'd never run before. I mean, you run when you're afraid. You run when you're scared. And maybe I'd done a little bit, but nothing like running for exercise like I then later did. So they came out with this. I can remember the room that I was in in Reveal Dormitory. So I believe it was my sophomore year. And they said, okay, you have this fitness thing, and we've decided we're going to do this to you, and you have this 12-minute run. 
holy cow, I didn't know if I was going to make it. Have you ever had a situation like that? I mean, 12 minutes to me doesn't sound like very much now. Of course, I'm not in shape to run now, so I don't, th- I don't know that I could run 12 minutes. I can run what I need to if you scare me. But 12 minutes, I don't know. I'm not in shape for that anymore. But I know lots of people in our church that used to do running and had to give it up just like I did. But you've gotten to that place, right? Toward the end of my running career, I guess if you want to call it that, I remember I used to run out the road here. I used to run out Route 26 North and uh, nearly got run over a few times by cars. But nevertheless, I used to do that. And I guess I didn't really pay a lot of attention. And typically I would run at a cooler time of the day, but it was hot. And I don't know whether it was my day off or what. I was running at a different time of the day. And I ran out there and ran out to Valley Rural Electric, ran around the thing and was coming back in the road this way. And I was out there still a ways. Those fields were on my left, and I started to get faint. That's something he talks about here. So if you look down in verse 3, for example, for consider him that endured such contradictions against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. He uses that word again in verse 5. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children, My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. Well, I was feeling like fainting. And uh, I don't know, I guess I had the presence of mind to stop running and walk. And then I was okay and I made it back and I didn't fall out by the side of the road. Spiritual dropouts. We've all felt that way when we've run before. We felt like quitting because it got to us and it's hard sometimes to run. It's hard sometimes to do your road work. Look at verse number 13. You'll see another uh, thought of this idea of spiritual dropouts. And it says here, And make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way. You know that, how that fits some Christians. They've kind of dropped out of the race and they've been turned aside by something. The, the language here is turned out of the way. And so they're no longer in the race. They're no longer pursuing their Christianity. And then when we come to verse 15, I think we find the strongest image of it of all because he says at the first of the verse, looking diligently lest any man fail of the grace of God. Now that kind of sounds scary. Um, maybe it's a little bit more helpful to us to look for the marginal reading where it says, fall short of the grace of God. What's he talking about? Well, you know, what he's talking about is the fact that for whatever it is that God calls us to do requires endurance, right? Run with patience. That's the word endurance. To stay in the race requires endurance, especially when it becomes difficult in the running of it. And what we need in order to endure and persevere is God's grace, correct? If we fail to appropriate God's grace, then we may very likely find ourselves as spiritual dropouts. Now, you can apply this, I think, two ways. You can apply this to people who fall short in terms of God's grace, saving grace. People who hear But for whatever reason, they just never quite get to the place that they cast themselves on God's mercy and grace and find his forgiveness. Something happens. Or you can apply it to Christians. I think the warnings in the book of Hebrews 
we hurt ourselves if we don't realize that they are given somewhat obliquely on purpose so that whether you're a believer or whether you're talking about apostasy, which is the ultimate dropping out and falling away from the faith, you can get something from the warning. We need God's grace if we're going to stay in the race, don't we? You're not going to stay in the race depending on your own strength. You're going to fall out by the wayside. And so all through this, it's the idea of dropping out. It's the idea of spiritual dropouts. And so that's the backdrop and the context in which he gives this warning. The author is led to use the figure of speech, as I said a moment ago, of a root. And he specifically, when he makes this warning, he talks about a root of bitterness. So in life, when we begin to see the application of something that we come across every day, it's as simple as this. A root is something that's left over. You cut something down, but something is left underneath the ground, sometimes unseen, sometimes hidden. You may know it's there, but others don't necessarily know it's there. But a roof is something left over. In spiritual terms, what we're really talking about is unfinished spiritual business, something that is left unresolved. And in the Bible, we see many, many examples of this. I want to talk to you for a few moments. We're going to look at some of these because they're familiar and they will help make these points for us. First of all, I want to talk a little bit about the book of Ruth. But I don't want to talk about Ruth so much as I want to talk about Naomi. You remember this dear woman? My heart really goes out to her whenever I preach on this. You remember how she and her husband Elimelech lived in the land of Israel and famine came over the land and for whatever reason they knew that they could get some relief over in the land of Moab and so they went over into the land of Moab where they could find relief and in that period of time first of all her husband Elimelech died and then her two boys Malon and Kilian they died. And she lost her family, and the only thing that was left to her in all of God's green earth was those two son-in-laws, sons-in-laws, daughter-in-laws. Thank you. I thought he was saying butter, and I said, what that got to do with anything? <laughs> those two daughters-in-law. Thank you. And what was her response to this? Well, I'm not sitting in judgment. I'm just telling you what it was. She became angry and she became embittered. And how do we know this? Do you think that we're just sort of reading into the thing? No, she speaks it herself. When they finally hear that the famine has been lifted and they finally go back into the land of Israel, she gets back to the hometown there and in verse 19, it says, so they too went until they came to Bethlehem. This is now Naomi and Ruth. And it came to pass when they were come to Bethlehem that all the city was moved about them. And they said, is this Naomi? And she said, so this is her own commentary. And she said unto them, call me not Naomi, which as you may know means pleasant. Call me not Naomi, Call me Mara, which means bitter, for the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly against me. A root, something left over, unfinished 
spiritual business. It happened in the land of Moab. She brought it back with her to Bethlehem. It was there. Unseen by those people who didn't know the events that had taken place in her life. But very much there. Well, I want to talk about another lady in the Bible. And I'm not picking on ladies. But I want to talk about another one. Do you remember the name of the woman that was David's first wife? Anybody? Yeah, Michael. What happened to her? Well, you remember the story, don't you? You remember how David was promised to become the king's son-in-law? And there was the older daughter, and then she was not given to David, but was given to someone else, and so... David didn't know whether he was going to have this privilege and opportunity or not, but ultimately, Michael, who was Saul's daughter next, was given to him in marriage. She was his first wife. And so, she stuck by him. Do you remember when the day came that Saul had, had just become unhinged, really? He, he had lost it. And he was going to kill David and he had tried to kill David before by throwing the javelin and all this type of thing and David had averted out of his way. This time he sent to the house and was going to kill him. If necessary, he was going to send those people inside and kill him right in the bed. And Michael knew it. And she let him down out of a window. He escaped and she put that disguise, that bolster, that all by his bolt for, for his bolster there, something that looked like hair, so that it would be a disguise. And she protected him, and he got away. Years pass, and David has been on the run all this time, and finally his fortunes begin to change. You remember he has acquired other wives now. In that time of running from Saul, he had acquired at least two, right? And uh, we know about one of them that we talked about recently uh, in a message, Abigail. And the war is coming to an end. And Saul has been vanquished. Saul is dead. Saul's sons are dead in battle. And there has been this long war. There has been Abner, who, is, who was Saul's remaining general, who has kind of tried to install this Ishbosheth, this unknown, not much known about him, son of Saul on the throne. And finally, Abner is ready to try to bring the kingdom together. And David said, you remember, you can't see my face. You won't see my face unless you show up with Michael, my wife. Now think about that for a moment. And when we come to 1 Chronicles chapter 15 and verse 29, here's what I wanted to read for you. And it came to pass as the Ark of the Covenant came into the city of David that Michael, the daughter of Saul, looking out at a window, saw King David dancing and playing, and she despised him in her heart. Ouch. There is hatred in her heart. Why? Because in the absence of all of this, she's been given to another man. I'm not quite sure how that all got squared with Israel's law, but a man by the name of Faltiel has become her husband. She's been with him for a number of years. 
And now David essentially breaks up that marriage and says, Abner, you will not see my face. We will not make any attempt to reconcile this and to bring Israel and Judah together into a united monarchy as it had been under Saul until you show up with her. And the Bible describes that scene of how this man, this husband of hers, trailed along behind, weeping as he went until finally they had to just tell him, you have to go back home. Well, how do you think Michael felt about all of this? I mean, it's been years really since David is in her life and now essentially she's treated as something of a political football because with all of Saul's sons dead and gone, it will only serve to reinforce David's claim to the throne that he is married to the king's daughter. And I think about this many times, you know, because most of the time when we're preaching about David, we preach about all of his strong points, all of the good things that he did. We do talk about the situation with Bathsheba. We do sometimes talk, as I mentioned recently, about the problem that happened with uh, numbering of Israel. But we don't often talk about something like this. And when you look at something like this and you kind of say to yourself, oh my, what did the man need of calling back Michael? What did the man need? He had plenty of wives. He had no short supply of, of women that could be a part of his life. Why did he need to do this? But she was bitter. And we can look at it, and as I say before, it's, I'm not here to sit in judgment, but it's very clear. She had allowed the anger in her heart over what had been done to her, that she was treated really as not, nothing more than something of a political football her marriage to this other man, broken up, forced to come back and live with David, and she's angry in her heart. And when this occasion comes, when David is finally seeing the ark come into Jerusalem, she just, the bitterness and the anger and the hatred that's developed in her heart, it just boils over. Now, she's punished for it. She's written childless as a result of it. But a root is something left over, you know, folks. It was unfinished spiritual business. It was something she never settled. I want to use another example. And if I'm moving forward, but you probably haven't looked in any of these places. But this is one that we don't talk about very much. And yet this is one that the scripture is pretty clear as an example of just what I'm talking about tonight. Do you remember the individual who's described in Acts chapter 8, Simon Magus? Not Simon Maggot, but Simon the Great One. What does it say about him in verses 9 and 10 of Acts chapter 8? <clears throat> they went to this place, Paul did, and says there was a certain man named Simon, which before time in the same city used sorcery and bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that himself was some great one. That's where he gets the name Simon Magus, the Simon the Great One. <laughs> to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the great power of God. Well, then what happened was they come in preaching the gospel, and he, Simon discerns that he sees these people believe, and he sees that they receive the Holy Spirit, and so he propositions Peter and basically says, wants to give him money, and so that on whomsoever he lays his hands, they may also receive the Holy Spirit. In other words, what's happened to this man is he's been upstaged. 
He's been used to being hailed in this place as being some kind of great one, the great power of God. Then comes Peter along preaching the gospel and they really see the power of God. Simon sees it also and he wants to reclaim that status of someone that people put up on a pedestal and look to. He's lost this now to Peter because they come in with the real power, the, the Holy Spirit, and he offers this proposition, and Peter is pretty uh, blunt with him about this. Verse 19 saying, give me also this power that on whomsoever I lay hands, he may receive the Holy Ghost. But Peter said unto him, thy money perish with thee because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. Thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter, for thy heart is not right with God. Repent therefore of this thy wickedness and pray God if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. For I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Then Simon answered and said, Pray ye the Lord to the Lord for me that none of these things may, which he have spoken come upon me. I personally think he's an example of the worst case. I think he's an example of someone who fell short of the grace of God in the sense that he never, he never savingly believed on Jesus Christ. He was bitter about being upstaged and that bitterness, that unfinished spiritual business in his heart ultimately, I believe, kept him from appropriating God's true grace and truly repenting of his sins and being saved. A root is something left over. You have any leftovers in your heart, in your life? you have any unfinished spiritual business? Because if you do, you really need to be careful. You really need to pray and you really need to think this thing through because you may very well be a prime candidate for bitterness. Have you heard the story, I think you have, of two monks who were walking through the countryside one day on their way to another village and as they walked, they came to a river where they spied an old woman. The woman was sitting there and she was upset because there was no bridge. She couldn't get across the river on her own. So the first monk kindly offered to her that they would carry her across the river if she liked. She said thank you, gratefully accepting their offer of help. So the two monks joined hands and they lifted her up and they carried her across the river. When they got to the other side, they set her down and they went on about their journey and she went her way. They walked about another mile or so before one of the the second monk began to complain. He said, look at my clothes. They're filthy from carrying that woman across the river. And my back still hurts from lifting her. I can feel it getting stiff. First monk just looked at him and kind of smiled and nodded his head. And he went a couple more miles up the road and the second monk started griping again. My back is hurting so badly and it's all because we carried that silly woman across the river. I can't go any further because of the pain. Well, <laughs> first monk kind of looked down at his partner who was now lying on the ground and moaning about his pain and asked him, he said, have you wondered why I'm not complaining? Your back hurts because you are still carrying the woman, but I set her down five miles ago. A root is something left over, unfinished spiritual business. Secondly, did you know a root will grow? This is really scary business. 
because a root will grow. Do you notice in our text it says springing up? You look there at Hebrews chapter 12, lest there be in any of you a root of bitterness springing up. So it may be dormant for quite some time, as in maybe through the winter. Or maybe you've cut something down and it felt such a shock to that tree or that plant that it just seems like it's totally dead. And then a year goes by maybe, you go out there and lo and behold, what have you got little shooters coming off that stump? Green leaves. And you think to yourself, I thought that was dead. And the stump looks like it's dead. But the root was there and the root grows. So the question for us to ask ourselves tonight as we make the application and we think about a root of bitterness and we think about unfinished spiritual business we ask ourselves the question tonight am I self-deceived am I kidding myself have I talked myself into thinking that I don't need to talk to that person in truth we might just be taking the easy way out not appropriating the grace of God which is exactly what this verse says. This verse says, looking diligently lest any man fall short of, fail of the grace of God. And the writer to the Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find what? Grace to help in time of need. God has promised the grace But a lot of times Christians really aren't interested in appropriating the grace that they need. And the root will grow. Two men in a home, they were both seriously ill in a room together. They occupied the same hospital room. One man was allowed to sit up in his bed for an hour each afternoon. It helped to drain the fluid from his lungs. His bed happened to be next to the window in the room. The other man had to spend all his time flat on his back, the nature of his illness. But the men, they would talk for hours. They would talk about their wives, their families, their homes, their jobs, their involvement in military service, where they'd been on vacation, all kinds of subjects. And every afternoon when the man who was in the bed by the window was propped up, he would spend time talking to the other man. And he would describe to him all the amazing things that he could see out the window. And so the man who was in the other bed, who always had to lie flat on his back, began to live for those one-hour periods each day when his roommate would talk about these things and he could see the images in his mind that the man was describing and the man who was by the window he talked about this he, he talked about the window overlooking a, a park with a lovely lake ducks and swans he said played on the water children sailed their model boats lovers walked arm in arm amid flowers of every color 
grand trees graced the landscape and a fine view of the city's skyline could be seen in the distance. As the man by the window described all of this in such beautiful and gorgeous detail, the man on the other side of the room would close his eyes and let the images go across his mind. And one day, though, it was a warm afternoon, and the man who was by the window described a parade looking out the window. He, he described a parade going by. And although the other man couldn't hear the band, he could just see it in his mind's eye as his roommate described. But unexpectedly, all of a sudden, a rogue thought went through his mind. And this was the thought, why should he have all the pleasure of seeing everything while I never get to see anything? It didn't seem fair. And the thought began to ferment in his mind. He felt ashamed at first, but as the days passed and he missed seeing more of the sights, his envy became resentment and soon it turned him sour. He began to brood. He found himself unable to sleep. He should be by the window. And that thought now began to control his life. Late one night, the man by the window, the man who had the fluid in his lungs, the man that they propped up for an hour every day to help drain the fluid out, began to cough. The other man, his roommate, watched in the dimly lit room as his struggling roommate by the window groped for the call button for the nurse. Listening to all this from across the room, he never moved. He never pushed his own call button, which would have brought the nurse. In less than five minutes, the coughing and the choking stopped, along with the sound of breathing, and now there was only silence, deathly silence. The next morning came. The nurse came in. She was bringing water to give them each their baths. She found the lifeless body of the man by the window. She was saddened, called the hospital attendants to take the body away. No works, no fuss. And as soon as the other man felt it was appropriate, he asked the hospital staff if he could have the bed by the window. Well, of course, the nurse was happy enough to make the switch. And so after she was sure he was comfortable, she left him alone in his new bed by the window. Slowly, painfully, he propped himself up on one elbow to take his first look out the window. Finally, he thought to himself, finally, he would have the joy of seeing it all himself he strained, finally got up high enough, looked out the window, and was looking at a blank wall. His roommate had made it all up in an effort to cheer and console the other man. Beloved, a root will grow. 
He was ashamed of the thought at first until it began to ferment and grow and turned him sour until it made him resentful enough that when his friend needed his help and was struggling for breath, he let him slip away. Lastly, number three, a root will eventually produce. Do you see how these things begin to grow on top of one another? First, there's a root. It's something left over. It's unfinished spiritual business. And it might lie dormant for a while, but sooner or later, it begins to grow. And if still unchecked and still left there, it will eventually produce it may take time when you make the spiritual application. It may take time. It may just take the right buttons being pushed. But eventually it will produce, and when it does, it's ugly. The writer to the Hebrews tells us what it produces. Would you look with me at verse number 15? The root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Two things. Trouble and contamination. That's what bitterness does. It brings trouble to others around us and contaminates them with our own attitude. Sort of reminds me of the bouncing Betty. I've made reference to this a time or two lately. Lots of folks here know what the bouncing Betty is. But you take Going back to World War II, the Germans were the ones to develop the bouncing Betty. It was a new kind of mine. The Germans called it the S-mine, the shrapnel mina, shrapnel mine. And here's how it works. See, you, you normally think of a mine as being something that you bury in the ground, and it's generally pressure sensitive so that you step on it, or a vehicle goes over it or whatever, and it goes off, and it, the explosion is the force of the thing. Not so with, the, 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 with what the, the allies call it, the bouncing Betty. Not so. It was rigged up this way. You would be going along. It was designed as an anti-personnel mine. And so you're an inf infantryman. You're going along, and your foot, there's a disguised tripwire there. You're close to the mine, but you haven't stepped on it. You've just triggered what's going to happen next by hitting that little line that you didn't see. A small black powder charge in the mine explodes. It pushes the mine upwards until the mine gets basically to about waist height. And then the main explosion goes off. And when the main explosion goes off, it propels in every conceivable direction 350 steel balls and shrapnel. That's devastating, but so is a bitter attitude. Unfinished spiritual business that grows and festers until finally it produces trouble for those around it and contaminates those around it. You know, folks, going back for a moment to Naomi, given how bitter she was, it's amazing that Ruth went with her. The reason I say this, and I want to read this verse to you, is because you remember originally 
She told the two daughters-in-law to go back. She told them to go back. She told them that there was no sense in them following her, no more sons in her womb. They should just go back to Moab and go back to their gods and go back to their homes and find new husbands. And she even said this in verse number 13 of chapter number 1, would ye tarry for them till they were grown? Would ye stay for them from having husbands? Nay, my daughters, for it grieveth me much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord is gone out against me. Some advertisement for Jehovah. It grieveth me much that the hand of the Lord is gone out against me. Well, if you're Orpah or you're Ruth, why would you want to follow Jehovah? If you look at Naomi and you see what Naomi is saying and she's blaming God for her problems, doesn't sound like anybody you'd be interested in worshiping and coming to know. It's nothing short of a miracle of God's grace, God's sovereign grace that Ruth followed her. It's only understandable that Orpah went back, but you have to remember what she went back to. She went back to false gods which means that she missed the grace of God in the Lord God of heaven and earth, the God of Israel, for salvation is of the Jews. Talk about destruction. Talk about the bouncing Betty. Talk about trouble that we bring to ourselves and those around us. Talk about others we contaminate. Judas became so disillusioned with Jesus. Jesus wasn't the king that he wanted. Jesus didn't do what he wanted him to do. Jesus also saw his greedy heart. Knew even though he entrusted him with the treasurer's purse, he was a thief. But he became so disillusioned that he betrayed Jesus. Talk about a bouncing Betty. And then he became so ridden with his own guilt that he ended up a suicide. I am only saying, folks, in conclusion tonight that I don't think we can have revival if we're angry against God and angry against our fellow Christians. I'll take you back to the question I asked at the beginning. How can we have revival if we don't talk to each other? I think this verse, for you and for me, it should scare the liver out of us. Because you're playing with something that's radioactive, toxic, it will damage you and it will damage those around you. 1986 was the year, so not so long ago most people will remember. If you weren't hearing it in the news, you've read about it. Chernobyl. The worst nuclear disaster on record. The Russian power plant. Of course, as seems typical so many times with these situations, the Soviets tried to cover it up. But the disaster occurred on April 25 and 26, 1986. 
as technicians made a mistake with what they were doing with the reactor, and we won't get into all the specifics of that tonight, but it ran critical. And at 1.23 in the morning on April 26, the chain reaction in the core went out of control. Several explosions occurred, triggered a large fireball that blew off the heavy steel. You've seen those domes that blew off the heavy steel concrete lid on the reactor. There was an ensuing fire in the reactor core that released large amounts of radioactive material into the atmosphere where it was carried by wind currents to all kinds of places. A partial meltdown of the core also occurred. The following day on April 27, 30,000 inhabitants of the little place around, I'm not going to try to pronounce the name, began to be evacuated. Some sources said that two people were killed in the initial explosions, but other reports put the figure at closer to 50. Dozens more contracted serious radiation sickness, and some of these people, of course, later died. The radioactive fallout was spread by the wind over Belarus, Russia, Ukraine, and soon reached as far west as France and Italy. Millions of acres of forest and farmland were contaminated, and although many thousands of people were evacuated, hundreds of thousands more remained in contaminated areas where in subsequent years, livestock were born, deformed, and other human, uh, human beings with radiation-induced illnesses and cancer deaths. More are expected in the long term. Following the disaster, the Soviet Union created a circle-shaped expulsion zone, exclusion zone. The radius was 18.6 miles. That's a lot of territory. That exclusion ground covered originally 1,017 square miles, but it was later expanded to 1,600 square miles. And I'm reading Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 15. looking diligently, lest any man fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled or contaminated. Heavenly Father, we thank you tonight for your loving kindness to us. Lord, we realize we have approached a difficult, sensitive subject, one that requires a great deal of wisdom. We realize, our gracious Father, that it's not always easy to determine these things. Many times tough to really ascertain the right course of action. But we thank you that we can depend upon you. We thank you that if we pray to you and honestly examine our hearts, then we'll know whether or not we need to talk to somebody. We'll know whether or not we're a prime candidate for bitterness. We'll know whether or not there's a root, something left over, unfinished spiritual business that may very well grow and then become a source of trouble and contamination to us and those around us. Help us, oh dear God, 
work in our hearts. Give us this grace that you describe that we might not fall short of it, but instead appropriate it to do those things that you may have called us to do. But you know God says he gives us grace. Anybody here tonight that would say, Pastor, pray for me. I need to talk to God, and I may need to talk to somebody else. But if that's the case, you've pointed out tonight that God can give me grace. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Anybody say, pray for me tonight. Let's stand together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your loving mercy to us. I pray that you will lead us and guide us in all the days to come. Help us to be those that have the victory over these types of things because we know they happen all the time. We know that we, as long as we are in this world, we'll always have these things to contend with. We'll always have our own shortcomings and those of others. I just pray, Father, that you would help us to be above reproach, and I pray that you would help us to find grace in our hearts. And for those who may still be thinking and contemplating and praying over what they have heard tonight, just give guidance, direction, and victory. Many of these situations are difficult. I pray for at least one person whose hand I saw tonight. Lord, just bless there and give great victory and comfort, guidance and wisdom. For I pray in Jesus' wonderful name, amen.